a kingdom not of this world, or is it? Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey and I'm joined by co-host Zach Narrison and get this, guest co-host and good friend of the pod, Matt Anderson. Matt, welcome aboard this week. Thank you very much for having me back, guys. It's a great pleasure and I was very excited. Oh, I just want to say it for the record. Oh, guys, One again. of our most popular episodes was yours, Matt. I mean, people loved you. So, and I, I and, <laughs> and I think maybe because it's uh, what you were bringing out was a little bit contentious in the Niebuhr world. It's like, oh, he's he's going there, and uh, but it was fantastic. Is Niebuhr a realist? But yeah, uh, it was a fantastic discussion. If you haven't heard that yet, uh, go back and check that out. For our audience, Aaron has the next couple of weeks off, so we're filling that great void in our lives with even cooler people. <laughs> I'm kidding, Aaron. We love you. But seriously, Matt is cooler. Uh, before the, before listening to this, if you haven't yet, like I said, go back, listen to the episode we did with Matt on his research. Um, I believe it was back in October. Matt has a very uh, lively mind and is one of the more exciting young scholars in Niebuhr studies today. Currently, PhD candidate. You just got up upgraded recently matt what, what's your status now so no i'm i'm, I'm still i've always been a dfield candidate i just passed my first um series of examinations um, okay gotcha so end of my first year we had a bit of uh it's called transfer status so defended my initial research proposal and and yeah we press on from here so that's awesome that how did that go like was what was that experience like for our uh people listening who might be doing a phd overseas yeah, so I, I suppose I guess most of most of listeners here will be very familiar with an American PhD program. The British PhD program, particularly the Oxford PhD program, is a very kind of different experience. I think the best way to describe it is that you're given um, three or four years, you're given keys to the library, and you're told to come up with an original um, dissertation, which for most people eventually turns into a turns into a book. And actually, my my kind of initial research proposal is is built on a lot of the themes we talked about in that first podcast um my provisional title is um the genealogy of christian realism and wow. a genealogy in intellectual history speak is essentially a history of an idea unpacking its instabilities and tensions and that's what i'm looking at with christian realism i'm looking at the origins of the idea why it became a sort of staple term in mid-20th century british and american political discourse and i'm looking at all the different types of people who were involved in creating this idea and i'm not looking at looking at it as a fixed and stable idea with a clear definition or a do- let alone a doctrine i'm looking at, looking at it more as a discourse mm-hmm. now many people like treat christian realism as kind of synonymous with niebuhr and but we know that like others were called that just before niebuhr like with walter uh, marshall horton mm-hmm. um and you, you say john c bennett was also john c. Bennett, absolutely so the, yeah, the, term, the term was coined i believe initially by john c bennett in 1939 when he published this small pamphlet Christian realism. Horton, um, who was his colleague, as, as we know, um, five or six years earlier, published realistic theology, but it was the same kind of theme. It was the same okay. intervention I think they were making in, 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 in theological Protestant American debates at the time. 
No, I'm curious. It, so obviously yeah. the term, like many terms, is retroactively applied uh, so mm -hmm. much. But I'm wondering how far back just the term realist goes. Uh, ob like, obviously, we look back and we'll say, like, people will say Augustine was maybe a progenitor of yep. Christian realism or, or Machiavelli was a realist or something like that. Um, are you doing any research yeah, on that absolutely. term of just that, realist? That, that's, that's, that, that's, the essence of, that's the essence of the project. And there's been, there's, been, there's been a handful of scholars who've really inspired me who, who have done far more advanced work on this than I have. Um, but the, the essence of, 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 of kind of my intervention and in, in, is that the figures, so the, the traditional realist canon in, in political theory um, generally starts with Thucydides, the ancient Greek historian, and then jumps to Machiavelli, then to Thomas Hobbes, maybe, and then some may push it to, to, to Nietzsche. And what, what, what this canon seems to have in common, according to people who use the term realist, is that they all these figures understood that politics was driven solely by power. And the only way to understand the political process is by understanding power relations between states and between individuals in charge of these states. Um, yeah. And Niebuhr and some of his interlocutors in the mid 20th century have been canonized as kind of revivers of this perennial wisdom. And in a lot of textbooks, it's taken for granted that, you know, Thucydides is, is a realist or maybe St. Augustine is a realist. But actually, as you, the question you bring up is, you know, when did this codification begin? When did these figures start being, um, you know, understood and, and, and categorized as, 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 as a realist? And I'm not going to claim this is my original idea because I think there's been amazing work on this done by a historian at um, the, uh, he's in Florence at the European, um, the EUI University hmm. called Nicholas Gio. And he's done a genealogy of political realism. And his line is that actually this codification of these scholars really only began in the kind of 1930s and 1940s when a, a bunch of intellectuals were looking for a way to critique the prevailing liberal internationalism they believed was such a dangerous um, political movement. Hmm. And Guillaume argues that these figures who were trying to make the case for the primacy of power in politics were really influenced more by the German scholars Karl Schmidt, who was actually the chief Nazi jurist, and mm. and also the famous German historian Friedrich Meinecke, who was very interested in, in in the sort of idea of reason of state and yeah and and then sort of balance of power and and and, and these kind of understanding politics from a from a from from lens solely from a lens of power. So really, what they did was they 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 took these essentially nineteenth century German ideas about the nature of power and they read those ideas into this classical canon and Guillaume's written a book where he shows how the interpretation of these classical figures like Augustine like Hobbes like Machiavelli were reworked in the kind of interwar years hmm. and in the early post second world war years to conform to this vision of power does that if that makes sense yeah it does <laughs> I, I think that I got I think I got my kind of original grounding on the term um, through Robin Lovin because I came in through the theology channel and he actually starts off defining it in the negative. And that's a lot like what you just did, more about what it isn't. It isn't, um, would you say, the idealist, um, you know, uh, geopolitical structure yeah. or, or, or you know, the ideals type of thing. Um, but it's more, uh, so it, it's not a top down, it's more of a bottom up uh, type of type of view of things. Uh, are, and this is the last question, then we'll get on with what, what sure. we're getting on with, but I'm, I'm intrigued and if Zach has any questions as well. Um, from just your initial research and just what you're looking at, is there any positive 
uh, movements um, that created the seedbed, I guess, for realism to start about? Because we tend to think of it more in the negative, but is there anything that was positive? Like my impulse would say that pragmatism had to have been there or something like that in in that time frame, in the 20s, in the 20s. So what I'll say is the two things. So the the realism Robin Lovin is talking about and the kind of more theologically inclined scholars who, who are using the term Christian realism are actually using the term real, uh, realism in a very different context. They're mm. not referring to the geopolitical debates. They're not referring to political realism. That is a staple of international relations theory. Um, mm. Actually, what they're trying to do and what Lovin does did very well in his work was he was trying to revive the kind of, as you say, the 1930s Christian realist tradition, which he locates with, you know, Horton, mm. Bennett and, and Niebuhr, and the term realist in that context was used in a very different way. It was referring to theological realism. And that theological mm-hmm. realism, as we can read in Bennett's early books, is a is a, is, a, is, a, is is the kind of radical middle between Christian pessimism and Christian optimism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and 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 it was it was really a way to navigate. So it's kind of a synthesis social of extremes in the, in, the, in the moral debates of the interwar years. It's something very different to the kind of. And, and that's why the, the kind of the story gets very confusing because the term realist is thrown around to, to codify Niebuhr by two different kind of traditions, the theologians and the international relations scholars, but they're using the term realist in a completely different context. And my uh, a kind of attack, if we can call it that, is not on necessarily the way Lovin and the theologians interpret Niebuhr as a theological realist, which historically I think is fairly plausible, but it's t- interpreting him as a, as a political realist, as a sort of hard-nosed um, you know, profit of power politics. That's my issue. And that's how Niebuhr has been interpreted, I think, very <laughs> frequently in, 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 in popular debates. In, so in, it's in, this in, massive uh, kind of misunderstanding or uh, equivocation. It's um, the same word. <laughs> yeah, it's the same word, right. And, and, and so let's just put them together. The language that we use to, 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 you know, we have to say, what do we mean by realism and, and, and how are we using it? Yeah. I wonder if um... and, and the confusion does come because Niebuhr indeed was part of these IR debates in the 1950s among um, among these IR scholars like Hans Morgenthau and like E.H. Carr, who he both knew, who who drew from him. And they were explicitly political realists. And they wrote in their books, this perspective is inspired by Reinhold Niebuhr's anthropology and Reinhold Niebuhr's conception of sin. Wow. So these guys were taking from Niebuhr and saying Niebuhr meant this, but actually Niebuhr responded, and I think most famously to George Kennan, and he he, he explicitly disavowed some of the um, associations with his ideas and George Kennan's. He actually does it in the irony of American history towards the wow. end, but he's, he makes a critical point about American uh, American diplomacy. That's amazing. It's not a necessary cure for you know uh, over optimism. So there is two ways in which Christian realism can be has been understood. A theological way and an IR way. Uh, yeah, my, right. My problem is the way he's been understood in IR debates, and I think that way is very powerful. And if you ask the average sort of political theorist, they would probably see neither within that tradition with Morgenthau and E.H. Carr, etc. And I think that does it. That is a great betrayal to. to and what makes people. it even more confusing is that Niebuhr can get along with them quite well. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and um, and they have a lot in common because they have similar or like relational i guess uh intellectual uh backgrounds or uh, you know biographies or like the, the, there are some common links there between Niebuhr and a Morgenthau absolutely and they also have down. what they have in common is also 
what they disagree with. They both disagree with that pragmatism is the way forward and that social sciences are the way, is, is the way in which we can solve the political problems of our time. They, they were far more conservative and said, actually, no, we need to go back into history. We need to go back into, well, Morgenthau didn't say theology, but Niebuhr said we need to go back to our history and to archaeology. And they were both skeptical about the idea of progress, that they believe the, the sort of liberals of the 1920s and 1910s were propagating. And they somehow somewhat straw manned, you know, their opposition. You know, they presented them as a sort of homogenous group of ignorant scholars, and and mm. you know, in, I guess that was part of a rhetorical kind of um, flavor of their texts, and and mm. and also highlighted the stakes of these debates. So absolutely, Niebuhr had a lot in common with the H. Carr and Morgenthau, but I don't. But I think he had. But it was a negative consensus, and that's what well, that's what the term Gio uses. Interesting. But another interesting dynamic of this kind of Niebuhr being cajoled into this IR tradition was. The influence of Nelson Rockefeller, because Nelson Rockefeller was was the figure who institutionalized and funded these scholars to come together, and he he, he brought them all to um, a few conferences in New York, told them basically you need to come up with a theory of international politics that wow. that argues against the kind of international idealism of those on 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 the liberal side of the debate who want global governance. <laughs> Are ideal and, and he believed they were far too idealistic for you know their own good yeah and we love catching up uh, hopefully we we're just talking before we start recording hopefully we're going to have matt back on here maybe in the fall um uh to to talk more and we'll get another update then i love talking to phd students because they're they're actually doing hardcore research constantly and um and matt you'll never have to do this hardcore research again uh, once you get done with this, but as as you're in it, we're gonna you know reap all the benefits we can from you, uh, and everything that you're learning. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so great update. Um, now just to get us back to kind of the main theme of this show, um, we are going to be uh, getting back into beyond tragedy. Uh, we're just about to finish it. Just a little refresher for those who have been following along. We started going through uh, Beyond Tragedy, I believe, last fall, um, and we're just now getting uh, to the closing two chapters. It's funny because I have dreams of doing Nature and Destiny of Man on here someday, but I think that would probably be like a three-year investment. But uh, anyway, um, but yeah, so Beyond Tragedy is widely seen as kind of the, one of the first works where Niebuhr puts, it, puts everything together. Um, but that's not to say this is necessarily like a single coherent whole of a book. It's more of an anthology of essays or 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 better, an anthology of sermonic essays um, that all come together to give us a clear picture, I think, uh, kind of a tapestry of Niebuhr's more mature, you know, fully matured views on human nature and pride mm -hmm. and history and ethics and Bible and all these things. So if you haven't listened to the other episodes yet, it's okay. Um, you can stay with us on this episode for now, and you can get caught up later. Um, each one of these chapters are more than capable of standing alone. Um, just like a sermon, each chapter begins with a, with a different scripture, and then the rest of the chapter is an analysis and application of that scripture to Niebuhr's world and Niebuhr's time, which, by the way, was right on the eve of, of World War II. So without further ado, since Aaron is not here... I did not ask him to do uh, ahead of time about this, but I will ask his worthy replacement to do the scripture reading for us. Matt, will you do the honors? Give me a second to... <laughs> yes, yeah, Sunibra opens up chapter 14, the kingdom not of this world with John 18, 
33. Pilate therefore entered again into the judgment hall and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight, but I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is the truth? I understand why uh, the King James, it sounds a lot better uh, with the accent. <laughs> the 1611, we have a true authentic Brit writing it for us. Yeah, Aaron's kind of lost his uh, British accent, so it's it's good to have a oh, yeah. real authentic <laughs> one for once. Okay. Um, yeah, very good. And uh, and as always, I I like to read off the official Reinhold Niebuhr section titles. Niebuhr doesn't name them. Niebuhr doesn't name the titles. It's just Roman numerals. Uh, but he uh, but he does section these things off. So here they are: the official. Love Thy Neighbor section titles. Introduction. Jesus Christ, Harmless Dreamer or Dangerous Threat? Chapter or Section 1. Kingdom Not of This World. Section 2. Truth as Incarnation. And Section 3. The Cynical Counteroffensive. What is truth? All right. Now, Zach, you want to get us started? What's he uh, what's he talking about in the introduction? What is this about? I, I named it uh, Jesus Christ, harmless dreamer or dangerous threat. He's uh, he just I mean, he gets into the story. He kind of summarizes this, the story between Jesus and Pilate. And as I'm recalling, he the thing that really brings together the first section is this this in part where he says, if if Jesus kingdom does not threaten Pilate's kingdom any more than Pilate assumes. How can it overcome the injustice of Pilate's kingdom? How can it speak a word of legitimate hope to the victims of oppressive power? And so he's getting at this like this divide between like Jesus comes in and Pilate doesn't seem to be threatened by what Jesus has to say. But then like, how does that have any meaning or purpose? How does it have any, um, what does it mean for those who are actually being oppressed? Mm -hmm. it, but he, it starts off though, right? With like, Niebuhr's kind of thinking, trying to think Pilate's thoughts here. And he's, and he's, uh, he kind of opens it up saying that Pilate is probably a little bit conflicted about his views of Jesus at this moment. He's not sure what to make of this guy, right? I think he says that he admires him and yet he has contempt for him. I don't know. What, what is, what does Niebuhr mean by this? Like, why would Pilate kind of admire Jesus, but at the same time, you know, have kind of contempt for this guy? I suppose it's a, a big, a big part of, I think, Niebuhr's narrative about this, this, this scene is, is, is the ambiguity of the role of Jesus in society and in history to be unredeemed. Mm -hmm. and he uses that term very carefully. I think Pilate, as we will probably talk about later in this, according to Niebuhr's interpretation, Pilate embodies this state power, political power, the way the Gentiles understand glory. Mm. Yet he's seeing 
Christ even more glorified than any of these great political leaders who Pilate, you know, has been trained to revere. But the personality, I, the character, the the uh, behavior of Jesus completely contradicts the very values that he has been taught in his Roman culture hmm. embodies glory. And I think that's, for me, the, the sort of source of ambiguity in, in Pilate's sort of attitude to Christ. Yeah, well, and and even like, um, I, I really like this tension that he sets up because on the one hand, Pilate sees that this man clearly stands for something that towers beyond Pilate's reign. This guy is clearly a, a l- beloved and he's ticking people off, uh, which it, it it really goes to show that this whatever this man has here is clearly some kind of power uh, that is beyond. But it's also a grave weakness in Pilate's own domain, you know, like to to act and behave and to stand for the things that he's standing for is, is very weak. So the main question for Pilate, and this kind of gets at what Zach is going to, oh. the main question for Pilate, does this man pose a threat? And the main question to the Jewish court, okay, so if, if we were to separate the Jewish court from Pilate for a second, that for the Jewish court, it's more of a question of blasphemy regarding the the claim of messiahship to the romans it's more about whether uh the claim of messiahship is just dangerous to rome and kind of the the reigning order right essentially Pilate wants to know is this man a harmless religious dreamer and prophet Mm. or a dangerous insurrectionist this is what this is what he's getting at when Pilate asks jesus if he's king of the jews so just starting with this question right now, I just want to ask you guys, without getting in, like, try not to get into, like, everything that Niebuhr talks about, mm-hmm. but just on first glance, is Jesus dangerous to Rome, or is he a harmless dreamer? Obviously, his ideas proved a little more harmful than I think anyone would have anticipated, just yeah. in terms of the, the Roman institution. It became quite detrimental in a very literal Well, They I guess- obviously saw it as a threat. Harmful to how they, how like Pilate would have seen power and institutions. I think, um, obviously, you know, Christianity eventually kind of takes over the Roman Empire. Yeah. What do you think, Matt? Uh, is, is Jesus dangerous or is he a harmless only, dreamer? Only dangerous to more totalitarian impulses of Roman Empire and more totalistic impulses of Rome of Roman hmm. imperialism. In in the sense that, uh, and I think we see this consistency throughout the New Testament. The point of Jesus saying, "My kingdom is not of this world." is to show that there's a very basic point. The obligations of the Christian are not fundamentally political, but of course they will have an indirect political influence. Yeah. If if there is a tension in the values between allegiance to Rome and allegiance to the kingdom, but it's, but I don't think the two are necessarily mutually exclusive. And I don't think, I think Jesus wants to break the categories that Pilate is thinking about him within and the Romans are thinking about him within because he's not come to bring political emancipation. Yeah. Is the kingdom of Christ more separate from politics or more fundamental to politics? Flesh that out a little bit more. What do you mean? Well, it's hard to without getting into his point later on. In a sense, (laughs) so we kind of come up with this bifurcation of, you know, church and state type of thing. Sure. But I think that we would be the first to, to say, given our current modern day struggles, is that there seems to be a fundamental issue with politics that's not political at all that is mm-hmm. wrong. Um, there's an, incapa- an incapability of talking, a strange impulse to demonize, um, to hate people, 
who are not like you. Um, these things that don't really have, I mean, in a sense, they're not partisan, so they're not political in that way. But they do have, It's what they speak to is actually something much more fundamental to politics in every area of our life, I guess. Um, and so in that way, I would I would say that Jesus is a threat. Um, if people start really believing that his kingdom is the way, that is a threat to Rome, you know, because Rome is not uh, acting that way uh, in accordance with the, with the kingdom of Christ. I don't know if I'm making sense. No, absolutely. Uh, but it, it's a threat to the more kind of bolder claims of Rome where, where, where allegiance to the empire transcends anything. Yeah. But I don't think the point of, I don't think Jesus is creating political insurrectionists. That's right. The, that's the other side. I guess it's dialectical. And I guess that's the point. Yes, yes. Yeah. Let's yeah. get into that dialectic. Do you have something else, Zach? No, no. Yeah, I was just agreeing with Matt. Okay, now first stop. Okay, so uh, first stop along the way. because we So we have the dialectic now. Hmm. Is Jesus a, th a threat or is he a, a harmless dreamer? Right. And what should Christianity be? What should the kingdom be? Should it be a threat or should it be kind of a harmless escape act? So uh, so Jesus's response to him, to the question. Right. Because Pilate's like, cause Pilate wants to know, are you a threat? And uh, and Jesus's response is my my kingdom is not of this world. And Niebuhr says that put Pilate at ease. Why is I? Why does this put Pilate at ease? And what other kind of staples do we find in typical religious life that would that put power at ease? What do you guys? Well, think? I think they, they've been. I mean, I think to some degree they've been hearing. I mean, just we can go historical. They've probably been hearing kingdoms of this kingdoms not of this world for uh, mm. generation upon generation at this point, and they probably harbor a bit of skepticism as to the kingdom of another world uh, eliciting any sort of power upon their world. Um, absolutely it's uh he, he i think he, di he disarms the political dimension of the, the overt political dimension of his his uh, language of the kingdom there's a great great quote from neighbor um see if you guys could respond to this he says religion is after all a very innocuous vagary yeah that's it, a great line <laughs> it prompts men to dream of another world in which the injustices of this world will be righted and the sorrows of this world will be turned into joy this this kind of sounds like nietzsche's <laughs> you know understanding of of christianity and it's an uh, idea that develops a lot further a couple of years later in the the nature and destiny of man yeah right this yeah. whole and, and i think i think in context this 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 remark is a is an attack on the kind of i think the ideal what he perceived to be the idealistic tendencies of you know liberal protestantism and the idea that if we just dream of a better future, that that kind of absolves us of actually having to get our hands dirty and build yeah. more just society. Yeah, and and I, I like it a lot because you know, <clears throat> at least in pastoral ministry, you I mean you counter this all the time. Where like, uh, it, it's easier to to speak of and to think of great ideas, and and then it's all much harder to like actually, like, you know, like for instance, you could just take like this is a really specific example. But you could just take like youth like any sort of youth program, there's all, yep. there's a whole variety of people who will be like, Oh, here's how you should do youth. But there's like 1% of 1% who are willing to actually like show up and do something. You know what I mean? 
And on that point, it was a. It reminds me of, uh, as you say, Zach, the the, the, the story um, Niebuhr famously repeated when he was asked why he had such an admiration for the Jewish people, and he always told the story in the same way. And he said that when he was a pastor in Detroit, I believe in the nineteen early nineteen twenties, and he was, you know, he saw the way in which the the, the factory workers were being treated by their bosses and and the church preached a lot of um social justice but, but it was it was the jewish mayor and and, and and the jews the jewish community of detroit who did something about it yeah <laughs> yeah and he he, he he tells that story frequently throughout his life and 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 for him he said that he saw that among many protestants of his age justice for protestants was an abstract doctrine justice for the jews was a was an action you know, and, and what's interesting is that's actually something about Niebuhr that I'm like always coming back to. Mm-hmm. You know, we we, um, we we often get into talking about Bart on here yeah. and some of these other contemporaries of Niebuhr. And I think that for me, that's one of the main criticisms. You know, this, this very thing is one of the main criticisms that I find myself returning to over and over again. I mean, there's an elder at my church, great guy, faithful guy, but he, he's not a Billy a Niebuhr fan, right? He's always kind of giving me a hard time. And I'm always... You know, he's always asking, like, why do you, why do you read so much Niebuhr? Or like, why are you so to Niebuhr? I'm like, because he brings me back to this very point where I actually have to get up off my butt and do something. You know what I mean? And 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 anything less of that is this like I mean, I'm not saying anything less is not doesn't have some sort of place, but I just have a tendency to fall back into that kind of almost like mm-hmm. uh Bartian withdrawal, you know, to, mm-hmm. to kind of be like, well, let's just talk more about the theology of the abstract here, instead of getting to the concrete measures in which this actually has some sort of valid impact. I mean, not valid impact, that's probably that's discrediting true. people, but um, you know, it, it really touches down. It really has some sort of like an obligation to act on your yeah, yeah, your yeah. Doctrine. And not to just... be clear, like just to be fair, in case we have Bartians listening, um, we uh, we understand that Bart was concerned for the politics of his time. And obviously the confessing church did a lot in Nazi Germany, but we're talking about kind of his thought and I, the absolute no that he actually, he point, he talks about it as being kind of a no point of contact between the heavenly realm. It's, it's the very, you know, top down kind of theology that kind of lends itself to an escapism. But I would say, and I think this is Niebuhr's point here that, all religion has this impulse and we could say like all humans are have an inclination to religion but all religious life has an inclination toward escapism that's why our great like the greatest co-heresy or whatever you want to call it to christianity has always been a, a some kind of incarnation of gnosticism belittling this world in pursuit of another and we have to remind ourselves constantly, you know, it wasn't the people reading the Gospel of Thomas being thrown to the lions. Uh, these people weren't threats. You know, the, that early form of Christianity that is about otherworldly living was not a threat to Rome. So they, you know, Rome didn't never felt obligated to deal with them. But, you know, it was the people reading the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke uh, who were thrown to the lions. So, yeah, but this is in many different religions. I know that China is actually um, sponsoring, giving money to Buddhist temples in China, even though it's it's a secular state. It started this about a decade ago, giving money to Buddhist temples to counteract the growth of Christianity because Buddhism kind of fit that that system a little bit better um and that it's it's about kind of suppressing a desire 
um, to change, I guess. Um, that might be controversial. I don't know. What do you guys thought? Um, it, well, I, let me just, uh, I just need to add a comment here. Um, if there are Bartian listeners and you do feel uncomfortable, um, uh, I, I don't want to soften the blow of what uh, I said. Uh, um, I will uh, abstain from uh, Cliff's uh, uh, walking back my statement. Um, I, I want you to feel a little uncomfortable. Um, I want <laughs> yes, you to feel yes. a little bit. Uh, uh, I think that's part uh, of the my point why is, I think is such, the, a, such an effective uh, writer is that he makes you walk away. Yeah. And I think Christianity's full of it. I think all religions are full of it. Like that capacity yeah. to not deal with our defined ways of like having an easy conscience and not dealing with the problems. And um, so, I, I think I like subculture living here in the United States, like Christianity becoming kind of a mirror of society rather than something that, that tries to change it. Personal piety is something that comes up a lot on here. Like this overwhelming desire to, you know, police our own piety rather than, you know, be concerned with justice and, and things that matter, I guess, uh, in, in, in everyday life, um, has a way of kind of removing us from the real, the real struggles, you know? And I think a very, uh, just on that point, and it, it is something that Niebuhr is deeply concerned about both in this chapter and, and, and in his later works, is this idea that justice is not just an individual ph uh, phenomenon. It's not just about the individual getting their morality right. It's not just about the individual getting their life right, but it's actually an obligation to for, for individuals to look at the communities and how communities mm -hmm. are you know, treated as, 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 as groups. And Niebuhr is very clear that individual kind of piety and collective justice do very different things. Yeah, and along with that, just kind of the obsession with personal salvation as being the main uh, draw of religion in, in the United States. And uh, I don't know if we could say like since the Reformation, but that's really been kind of the main thing um, going around Billy Graham type of Christianity. That's a very non-threatening type of Christianity, this vertical, you know, uh, salvation where it's just die, you know, live, die, go to heaven. Um you know, that's a very easy conscience is very easy type of faith um, that is not that that can make the the pilots of the world uh, relieved, you know? <laughs> and get, well, yeah. And so that I mean, that's kind of his point in this first section, right? Like, yeah, like, it's not really that threatening. You know what I mean? <laughs> like in pilots mindset in pilots standpoint, um, probably fundamentally because pilot misunderstands it. You know, what I mean? he misunderstands what's kind of taking place. Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the things that maybe Niebuhr didn't highlight that well, it, that he could have probably drawn out more in this first section is that there's a, there's like a there's like a I mean, he does highlight it well to some degree, but he could have been more explicit just saying like there's an irony here. You know, mm -hmm. there's an irony to uh, there's irony all over the place, but there's there's irony in the fact that he doesn't really understand that Jesus is, in fact, a threat, even though Jesus saying this puts him at ease. It, he is a threat to what to his standpoint. Mm -hmm. um his viewpoint yeah it's amazing so okay good so just to kind of uh sum up that that part um when jesus responds you know my kingdom's not of this world uh Pilate is very comforted by that statement but there's a big butt coming watch out for the big butt and that is section two truth as incarnation um so all is going well Pilate's about to let him off. You know, he he wants to kind of come to this guy's aid a little bit, you know. Then Jesus has to say one more thing, right? Um, that he has come 
bearing witness to the truth. Niebuhr points out um, the Johannine use of Greek terms here to express uh, incarnation, specifically truth and light. What did you guys take from this? Like, um, why is is the Gospel of John using, explain, I guess, the use of, of truth and light as incarnation here? Well, I would just add that, you know, I'm just I'm just happy and excited, you know, as a Bible major, I'm just happy and excited to see Niebuhr using his word studies here, you know, just getting getting into the hermeneutics. <laughs> Did he do it correctly? I don't know. Uh, I'm not that into I it. I don't know. I, I never I never deep deep dived him, but I can see him breaking it out. You know, he's breaking it out here. Well, he's, he's very aware his his dad, you know, has uh, trained him in that, I think, growing up. So truth, light. But like, but I, what, what is Jesus trying to get across here? I think I think it, especially in the, in the very first section of part two, he's very keen on um, highlighting that the use of the Greek terms very rigorously by John is, in some sense, is a rhetorical uh, device, and that he doesn't want he uh, his readers. I mean, Niebuhr doesn't want people to think this is a this is a kind of Western rationalistic definition of truth, and that's why he emphasizes the simple the kind of the presence of revelation. Alongside this, yeah, alongside truth, because this was definitely a concern of Niebuhr's in the 1930s. That he was, he was, he was very worried about the kind of way in which people would very loosely use the term truth and equate it to whatever they believe would be rational. And Niebuhr's point is that the, the, our existential reality cannot be reduced to a rational paradigm. So he's just making clear that these terms that are often associated with Western rationalism are actually used in a bit of a different way. Yeah, <laughs> to, to, to how it may. Uh, seem on the surface yeah that's right i i i really like um the way the neighbors talking about this here's a quote from him. he says the truth is a revelation of the fundamental pattern of life which sin has obscured and which christ restores the logos logos is the very pattern of the world and uh, yeah, like Niebuhr is borrowing this in the same way that, that the Gospel of John is borrowing this language to get to a deeper Hebraic point, I think. Yeah. And that is that yeah. um, like the Romans would would kind of especially Stoics would equate truth and nature. You know, mm. um, the truth is the the very causality. It's it's the essence of everything. Um, it is the logos, you know. Um, and so in a way, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is, is not of this world. You wish your world was my kingdom. I am already like it's it's the fulfillment of what the world is intended to be. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, what's really interesting about this is so I was preaching on um, John uh, 20, 24 through 29 this this last week. And it, in reading this, it's like Niebuhr was getting at something I think that's kind of almost lost on people a little bit. And I think it's this fundamental thing you just said. And it, in in the reason I just brought up John is <clears throat> uh, there's this passage, I mean, verse 29, uh, chapter 20, verse 29, um, Jesus says this thing. It's like, uh, blessed are those who have, who have not seen and, and yet have believed. And what's interesting is that that word blessed is actually a macarism, which is, it's a wisdom, it's, it's used in um, wisdom literature. It's a, it's a declaration about flourishing in this life. And there's this there's this guy named uh, Jonathan Pennington. Um, I really love his book. He wrote a book on uh, Matthew five, and he he his argument is that in the Beatitudes we should interpret what Jesus says, where he says you know blessed are, and then he goes on and he says that several times. He says that we should interpret that as flourishing, 
And so I asked him, I said, you know, because he wrote that commentary on Matthew. I said, do you think John is using that the same way at the end of his gospel? And and actually, he, he responded to me on Twitter. He said, I would say that he is using the word that way because that is what the word means. Life, yeah. which is another way of talking about the kingdom, is shorthand for the flourishing life, shalom. Mm-hmm. That is, we are we were designed for and that Jesus uh, has come to inaugurate, model and secure. Mm-hmm. And then he points out John 10, 10, where he says, I've come to bring life, life in abundance. Um, oh, yes. So that was kind of a, a lot. And, just like, really and immediately that when he says, I am truth, or I come bearing truth, the reader's mind goes immediately back to, to the preamble or the, you know, the, the very beginning of John and Niebuhr goes back there as well. And this is kind of what Niebuhr argues. It says that, so, you know, basically Jesus is not of this world, but is incarnational into it. And therefore is, he is the very structure of the thing. Mm. Uh, um, As the description of Logos goes at the very beginning, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Yeah. He is what holds everything together. Yeah. And I think mysterious, right? What's that? I'm sorry. But the whole these these kind of um, symbols and concepts and, and and this language used to describe the divine nature is designed to be mysterious because the yeah. whole point is that we can't rationalize the, the glory of God. We can't rationalize the fullness of who Christ is, but we yeah. can sense through human example how he held himself in the in these contradictory. You know, sorry, these these ambiguous political situations. What yeah. he was like, he can sense his nature without being able to explain it, and that goes back to the point I was making a bit earlier about Niebuhr didn't really want didn't want people to think God was a was a construct of our reason. Right. Um, There's something beyond how he how 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 he explained what logos meant because logos often was you know in, in ancient Greek rationalism was just essentially logos was sort of the the um, the abstract structure of the essence of something. Right. And, you know, Paul is using the term logos rhetorically. He doesn't actually mean there is an abstract rationalistic structure. That's why he was so keen to emphasize in the text that this is to a Greek audience, primarily a Greek audience. Right. He's trying to make them understand something yeah. with human language that can't really be explained. At the end of it, you still have to say that there's something language. mysterious going on here yep. um, yeah. that and we can't fully understand, but we can sense. Yep, absolutely. The analogy that Zach uses um, of flourishing, I guess it's a direct um interpretation is that right uh zach yeah uh of of flourishing and kind of combining it with matt said there's i think that we could say there's something other about life as well and that's where Niebuhr's going to go there's there's something mysterious about it that is not quite reducible to logic it seems like it is counterintuitive kind of like somebody would argue and this is i don't mean to stretch things here but people would say that they're like recent theories i'm just using this as an analogy people would say there's recent theories in like science which the reason we don't understand them haven't understood them throughout history is that they were counterintuitive so like for instance the 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 history of i mean uh the discovery of evolution or the discovery of uh, quantum mechanics people would say that they are contrary and so we don't we don't they're actually not they're not intuitive is what people would say and so um they're hidden i've heard I've, i've heard it argued that way and it's almost like Jesus's ethic or Je- what Jesus is bringing into the world is in a sim- in a similar way. It just it's very counterintuitive. It, you know what I mean? It doesn't it actually runs contrary to what our conscience would tell us in a general setting. It runs contra it's, it runs uh, contrast to power. It runs contrast to our desire to survive. 
Um, and it's almost like, so Jesus is bringing this counterintuitive. That's the only way that I can like describe what I'm trying. Well, and to that's what that he goes on to next. And yeah. this point is brilliant. So he says that basically this world will not comprehend Jesus's light. And this is hearkening back as well to the beginning of John. The, uh, the darkness will not comprehend the light. Hmm. Um, so in a way, what this is saying is that Jesus will be condemned. But a much more profound implication here is that the world itself is alienated from its own true character. It's alienated from its own truth. So Jesus representing the fullness of truth, the fullness of flourishing, however you'd like to put that, uh, we are against what's even good for us. We're in some way separated and against the thing that is hidden from us. But but is good for us. Yeah. And the, the thing that I would add to that is the reason I like the word flourishing is because it runs contrary to the word blessed, even though they're supposed to be the same word, or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and that is that um, flourishing is about here and now, but also in the future, right? So this is supposed to bring flourishing to your life now, but also in the future. Right. Not that it's right. going to make you a bunch of money or anything like that, but flourishing. Because it's is, true now. It's yeah, true yeah, now, it's just true as now. it will be in the future. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that is one of the, the fundamental differences between some of the things we were talking about earlier, where the, the church has a tendency to uh, almost be so future-minded that they have nothing meaningful to say about the present. Or you know otherworldly-minded. I mean? Yeah, there you yeah. go. That's, that's and, actually saying, yeah. And this is even more like the profound point that he's going to cross. So this means that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of truth, is not a kingdom of some other world, but it's a picture of what the world is if the world were completely true, the kingdom is what the world should be. You know, uh, it's not some other yeah. world. It's the completeness, the fullness of what it already is. Yeah. You know, it's what it is, but more fully. Um, so this isn't Gnosticism or Platonism. It's not escapism. Um, it is after the fullness of the world. It reminds me of that Habakkuk uh, verse where it says that God's knowledge fills the world like water fills the sea. Like if you can try to stretch your mind to get that image in your mind, you know, in your head of, you know, God's knowledge filling the world like no, like water fills the sea. How does water fill the sea? It's an essence of you. It's like what Matt's saying. There's a mystery there of how God completes this thing and and fills it up, right? Um, the water is the sea, but that's what God is, though. <laughs> you know, God is filling that uh uh to the world so it's kind of like authenticity like kind of how like the uh the later existentialists will talk about authenticity it's kind of a filling up of what of humanity and all of its glory what it is intended to be um it's not being more it's being exactly what it was intended to be i don't know if that makes any sense um That's kind of like good. virtue ethics a little too mm. But I suppose on the other end of the extreme, Niebuhr is also you know, positioning this conception of the kingdom in this rather novel conception of what the kingdom is. He's positioning it, yes, absolutely on one hand against the Gnosticism, dualistic idea that the kingdom is a transcendent entity that has nothing to do with time and space. Likewise, he's also positioning it against the equally fallacious perspective that the kingdom of God is some sort of worldly political entity right. yeah, that can be built and institutionalized right. in the same way the Romans have built and institutionalized their power. That's why the is, but not yet is so necessary because you have to temper both extremes. Absolutely. If you take, if you take the former, you're flying off into otherworldliness. 
the what you just said, if you take that to the extreme, then you're only concerned with getting your guy or gal elected and Absolutely. getting your way here. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love this quote. I put this up on Love Thy Neighbor Twitter earlier. The kingdom, he says, constantly impinges upon man's every decision and is involved in every action. And he goes on to say, the kingdom come, thy kingdom come, Niebuhr says. The hope of this prayer when vital is a constant pressure upon the conscience of man and every action. So it's kind of like the future hope is impinging on the present through the conscience of of God's people. And this is another quote by him. The kingdom which is not of this world is thus in this world through man and in man who is in the world and yet not altogether of this world. So it's kind of like uh, he's using Jesus as clearly the the incarnation, the truth. But he's also saying human beings are incarnations. We can be incarnational as well. Um, as we stand right now, because we have that kingdom working on our conscience right now and transforming us. Absolutely. And the object of justice, the object of that practical pursuit of justice are the ideals embodied by what the kingdom, a revelation of the kingdom is. I think that's that's really key, that he was pitting this novel and more nuanced form of justice against um, more liberal conceptions of justice he felt were too idealistic. So, for instance, he, his critique of the social gospel was that they talked about justice, but they didn't come to terms with the other side of human nature that wars against justice. They didn't deal with sin seriously. Whereas you know, there's, there's, there's constant references, in, especially in part two of this chapter, of sin and how sin is the source of why the world is not conforming to the values of the kingdom. But likewise, that shouldn't stop us from striving anyway. Yeah. And this is the tension. This is where, as you say, you know, the kingdom, which is not of this world, is always in man's uneasy conscience, that uneasy conscience, the tension between the, the inherent goodness and the inherent badness. Yes. I think this is a really interesting point because going back to what we talked about half an hour ago about realism in Niebuhr, the, the idea that Niebuhr was this political realist or this person yeah. with a tragic vision of history uh, and, and, and a very cynical conception of a human condition completely doesn't, you know, completely misreads this, this, this conception of justice that Niebuhr has. If humans don't have a good part of them in their nature, they can't pursue justice, and therefore the command to pursue justice would be idealistic and and and, yeah. and, and pointless. But and this is why I think your research, Matt. Yeah. This is why I think your research is so interesting because it seems like whenever you come on here, whenever you're talking, you have this kind of the mystery of God hangs over you, like a constant awareness of this, as within Niebuhr, whether it's in history, whether it's in the conception of Logos. Uh, there's always this mystery that's standing against us that we can't completely understand. And if we could understand it completely, we'd have an easy conscience. Absolutely. But that's the kind of source of the disruption of uh, of our conscience. Yeah. But this, and, this conception yeah. of the mystery of history, we talked about it a lot in the last, um, after the last podcast. It's at the forefront of even this piece with Niebuhr because he's writing in the late 1930s. In the late 1930s, we're seeing among um, these kind of let's say liberal intellectuals were now disillusioned with liberalism yeah this uneasiness about what do we do with our understandings of progress and and progress is something that is historical progress and political progress is, is a theme that dominates this chapter too the first line if you go back to section one just quickly he says the fourth evangelist is not a historian but an interpreter of history i love that and, yeah. and, and, and that's very is, jewish yeah absolutely and his, his point is that you know well he neva's point is that he's using this 
passage and his interpretation of John to make an intervention into the debates about historicism that are dominating the consciousness of like-minded theologians and intellectuals at the time. Because on the one hand, you had the liberals um, who believed in, you know, the Whigs who believed in the constant idea of progress and, and the idea that the world would be getting better and better. You had theologians believing this and you had secular people believing this because of the triumph of human reason, essentially, and technological advancements and, and, mm. and, and, and enlightenment. Isn't it hand, so... Who were saying you're all talking nonsense we've seen the destruction of the first world war we're, we're seeing totalitarianism yeah. emerge in europe you're talking nonsense and neither saying we can't forsake our hope in progress entirely but we have to nuance our hope in progress and it's not just neither saying this it was characteristic of bennett and horton and the kind of christian realist theological circles he was a part of that was what was on their consciousness with regards to the course of history and human progress it was really a debate about human progress isn't it so interesting that for so long, I mean, we've put up with this, this kind of caricature of the Gospel of John as being a Greek gospel or, you know, I, I and I, dude, I loved John when I was a, a senior in undergrad um, because I was at the tail end of a lot of philosophy mm-hmm. and I come in reading Gospel of John. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this. Plato's cave, the very traverse chapter or something like that, you know, but as it turns out, and as you made clear just now, Matt, I think that, that John is very, it's one of the most Hebrew of them all. Mm. Uh, It's an, it's an interpretation of history. It's not a, um, it's not, it's not Greek in that way, you know, where it's trying to, to nail down the logos, Um, but it's actually trying to free the logos in a lot of ways. That's interesting. Now, can, can I read this section on the uneasy conscience? Is that all right, Zach, or you got something? No, no, go for it. So he says, 278, um, man is not of this world in the sense that he can never rest complacently in the sinful standards which are normative in the world. He may be selfish, but he cannot accept selfishness as the standard of conduct. He may be greedy, but he knows that greed is wrong. Even when his actions do not conform to his ideals, he cannot dismiss his ideals as irrelevant. So he can't go the opposite extreme either. Modern as well as ancient theologies, which emphasize the total depravity of man, fail to do justice to the difference between human ideals and human actions. The action may always be sinful, but it stands under the criticism of the ideal. Every ideal of of justice may be colored by interest, when it is applied to situations in which men are themselves involved, but they cannot consciously construct ideals of of justice to conform to their interests. Every corruption of justice can exist only by borrowing from and pretending to be a more disinterested justice than it is. He's basically saying that every attempt we get of trying to instill something and hammer Mm -hmm. something down, we know deep down it's it's not the end, or we should know. There should be an uneasy consciousness. And he actually makes it explicit next. And I'll quote him. Uh, He comes in a little bit after this. He says, the king, um, the kingdom, which is not of this world is always in this world in man's uneasy conscience. Mm. Ooh, baby. The kingdom, which is not of this world is always in this world in man's uneasy conscience. Thoughts? Well, I think it's what we've been getting at. I mean, I, I think it's this, this this idea that it has the incarnational aspect that, you know, uh, I, I love the connection he makes to Plato. I think I've I've never read Plato and thought, man, this is such a great I mean, I, I've read some Plato, but it was just really it was just really striking in the sense that, like, there is this ideal that kind of hangs over 
all human consciousness. You know what I mean? This ideal that is, um, we have to constantly be aware of the fact that the kingdom has not yet entered the world. But yet, we all we, at the same time we also face people who, who do believe that. You know what I mean? I, that's the one thing I'd push back on this a little bit is, mm. I think one of the main errors that you run into, is people who it's like with ai right now people really think that this is going to herald the the <laughs> the the inbreaking of well not just even the end times i mean there's the doomsdayers but that's the easy ones but the, there's the positive absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah it's it's the this is the inbreaking this is the inbreaking of the kingdom and you know the religion for breakfast did a video yeah. about the new ai religion and and it really this absolutely. reading this, the idea of secular eschatologies absolutely the idea yeah. that Whereas there's going to be, and, 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 and there's a lot of, um, especially intellectuals around Niebuhr. So there is a very uh, well-known historian. He, he was not, I don't, I don't believe he had any uh, sort of conversations with Niebuhr, but he had a lot of interactions of a lot of people Niebuhr was <laughs> was in dialogue with, particularly Herbert Buckfield. So it was a historian called Reinhard Kasselek who, who deals with this idea of, of, of this obsession with the force of progress in human history. And he was talking about how this idea of it, and, and Niebuhr brings it up here, this, this idea of history is moving to a sort, certain direction towards emancipation. And, uh, and, and, and there is a certain ideal at the end of history that, yeah. that, that history is traveling towards and every generation gets closer to that ideal. And eventually, at a certain time, that ideal is fulfilled. And the real debates over progress have been about what is, what is, what is driving this, um, cool. this pursuit of progress? What is driving this march to progress? The Marxists will say it is the, the nature of the economic organization of a particular society. The liberals will say, or the sort of 19th century liberals would say it will be the spread of reason, which will lead to greater liberty in society. And, you know, tech utopians will argue that it's the, the, the sort of the, the surrender of state power to tech mm -hmm. and AI well, and data, etc. It's always an idea that history is traveling in a certain desirable direction. It's something Niebuhr was very against. And understandably from from perspectives that we've been talking about yeah well i i also think that you know one of the things i immediately think of when i when i read it or when I, when I read through what you were talking about cliff is and going along with what you're saying matt is there's this big issue in ai just because we're on that topic and the technology and all that and i've been reading on it but it it came to my mind is really there's the fundamental problem that everybody's worried about and that's the problem of alignment and it's like basically if you have something that's you create that's smarter than you how do you ensure that it's aligned to your your vision of the world? And a lot of very smart people are very terrified because I think they are. It, it's almost like it's exposing this issue of alignment. It's almost like un, it's almost exposing this fact that we we're really terrible about like recognizing this divide where uh, we're greedy, but we understand that 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 um, greed is wrong, um, mm. and we understand that like anything we create has a tendency. Anything we create is probably going to emulate that. Or um, is, is that making sense? You guys track? How can it here? not? I mean, yeah. but to play the other side of this, because Zach and I go around a lot about this, and I did my research on technology. My paper was called Technolo "Technological Ambiguity and the Uneasy Conscience." Mm -hmm. So it was a, a lot about tracing um, these plot lines in technology, and 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 I, like that's why my my mind went immediate to the doomsdayers because I run across those more often um than actually the optimists uh but it does the same thing it creates an uh, it creates an easy conscience actually in the long run and you might think and, and that's what uh actually Niebuhr's big critique of the romantics 
and kind of this disdain for technology. And they think that it's ruining society. Um, Niebuhr still shows how they have an an easy conscience as well, um, because it's not their problem. They're leaving. Uh, There's an escapism there. And there's there's also some kind of a relief and conscience to those who feel they're doomed. So a lot of times um you even even if you in even if you begin like zach does <laughs> in a freak out on whatsapp our whatsapp discussion <laughs> about oh my gosh we're going to hell in a handbasket ai is going to take over everything and i find myself always arguing with zach with this stuff but if you were super optimistic i'd probably be arguing with him on that too uh but uh but i think that there is a way that our pessimism about it as well creates that that easy conscience and there's even a a a way there's something to be said also for all these optimists will probably when it does come crashing down and not you know going to hell in a handbasket quite but when it does come crashing crashing down Niebuhr makes a point in nature and destiny that optimists tend to find themselves at the end as Mm -hmm. pessimists they just swing in the opposite direction but Either way, it's an easy conscience. We love yeah. finding that that slot, that That's easy it. conscience to have. What I, what I was getting at with alignment is just that we we really you can you you I guess it really brings to light this issue that we typically try to like people try to like conceal. I guess you could say, like it mm-hmm. it makes you really ask the question of. I mean, there's the the I guess the, I've heard the parable or whatever the or not, I don't know if it's a parable or just a saying, but it's a lot harder to create. It's probably a lot harder to create an angel than it is to create a demon and that that's in creating these technologies um but it's there's a there's a desire to like resolve the ambiguity there's a there's a desire to just it's either all going to be great or all going to be terrible and it's not true Uh, like i i don't think that either extreme is true like okay so maybe we need an entire episode on this question of technology because i could see it's going down a rabbit rabbit trail with us but i i think that um we will find ourselves having the same conversation over and over again. This, these conversations actually greatly mirror the dis, the discussions on, on nuclear proliferation. Also pragmatism. And the point he makes about how the pragmatists don't know how to distinguish between different forms of knowledge. On the yes. one hand, they've got this, they, they, they think that scientific reasoning and technical reasoning can be applied to the social right. um, life of man. And he said the two things are fundamentally different because human nature human nature for neither is immutable it doesn't right. change even though the technology surrounding it changes that's right so to go back to what zach's point was about it's easier to make an angel than it is to make a demon i'm not so sure about that mm-hmm. i think that it's just as hard to be completely evil <laughs> to do completely awful things than it is to be completely good uh it, it might feel like the path of least resistance but we are still kind of ambiguously in the state of sin like in in order to be completely evil, you have to be so good at it. Um, and I don't think that we, you know, have that capability. All right, so we can talk about that forever. Let's 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 move on right along. The third part I called the cynical counteroffensive. Uh, Pilate, uh, Jesus says that he's come bearing truth, and Pilate has this big, strong, powerful man doesn't come back with that great of a an argument, just kind of a whimper. What is truth? What did you guys take from this section? It was a very interesting anti-clericalism coming in, coming through Niebuhr's writings, and particularly his warning, I feel, against priests and people in positions of religious authority hmm. losing track of these ideals that we've been talking about, the kingdom, 
real truth, the person of Christ, and selling himself short and selling out to political power. And he's talking about how hypocrites, um, religious hypocrites, are often susceptible to doing that. Because in this scene, we see religious elites and political elites now coming, coming in opposition to Christ. Bearing witness to truth is really powerful. And you have we have to understand that the main weapon of those in power is sophistry, cynicism, mm. not like is nihilism, is uh relativism. I mean, you name it, is what aboutism? I mean, there are so many things that try to relativize this world so much that truth doesn't have power. And that is kind of, I think, the instrument of the powerful often is to relativize truth to show that uh, this Jesus guy really isn't beyond me. You know, um, me who, you know, I am a proconsul of Rome. Jesus isn't beyond me. There's nothing beyond Caesar. Uh, but you have to believe in these ideals or Caesar is more powerful than you. No, I, 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 I do think it's about the kind of, as, as Cliff was just saying, I think what I, what I draw from this really is um, he turns his kind of narrative to the other prong of a dialect. So on one hand, we can't see the kingdom as completely transcendent. But now in this part, he's saying, but we must also understand that the kingdom is not political power. And he's really warning against tendencies mm -hmm. to view the kingdom as, as, as something that is simply can be brought about by, by, by almost compromising yourself and by seeing the political system of this world as somehow directly connected to these transcendent goals. Like it, the political system, I think, where we need to see it is a means to an end to bringing about something transcendent to politics, which is justice. He's not seeing the political system as an end in itself, which I think he sees his contemporary evangelicals kind of doing. And, and it's something that deeply troubled him. Yeah, yeah good. I, I wanted to read this one part real quick, and then we'll start wrapping it up. Sure. Uh, 283, he says, nevertheless, the kingdom of truth constantly enters the world and its entrance and, and, and its entrance descends beyond conscience into action. The word is made flesh. We have to believe in truth. And 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 it goes even beyond the conscience. The kingdom isn't just in the conscience, but it has to come into action. And then he says, the spiritual descendants of Pilate in Germany today, on the eve of World War II, Hitler's in power. The spiritual descendants of Pilate in Germany today are facing a determined band of spiritual sons of the of of the Christ. And the former have found no way of quieting the defiance of the latter by their use of power. No threats of coercion and imprisonment have been able to change the actions of men whose primary loyalty is to God and not some uh, prince of the world. Their slogan, we must obey God rather than man, has become a word of nemesis for those who sought to make power the sole, uh, the sole source of truth. So just by virtue of the claim like that there is a truth higher than you, uh, that you know, Absolutely. bearing witness to that is powerful. It was a very, it was a, it was a very real historic, historical context to those remarks, which is the, you know, he's seeing that he's seeing particularly the German Church, yeah, partnering with Nazism, and using their theology, particularly their eschatology, to justify the yes. the power of Hitler. And yeah, it was one of the first, as as you probably know, one of the first. Um, Theological voices in the Protestant neo-Orthodox scene to really make a big deal out of this, 
telling Protestants in America to stop being apathetic to what was going on in the continent because right. it does involve you because it does involve something universal which has been the integrity and the nature of, of the Christian faith and Niebuhr was so disappointed to see and, and disgusted to see what was happening among most German Christians of course not all of them well I, I wonder no, too about example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who he spent who who, who he was in, yeah. in, in in dialogue with um I was going to say, I wonder about the historical connections because I wonder, it sounds very personal when he writes here. He's seeing, I believe he's seeing a, he's seeing a, a Christian church in Europe um, politicizing themselves and, and not just politicizing themselves, but, but, but um, shaming themselves by, by using their religion to support totalitarianism. Mm. And it's so hard at that he's point. Very, I know that, I think uh, he feels that they think they were drunk by the power that, that the state gave them or... It's drunk by the power and there and just in the rise of Germany, even though it happened so quickly, like in a lot of ways, it was still gradual. I know that there was allegedly a debate between Bonhoeffer and Bart about whether to uh, subscribe to the Aryan paragraph, which said that only uh, people of the German race could uh, be part of could be clergy in the German church. And. That was one of those boiling frog moments when, you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Bonhoeffer was like, no, we have to draw the line here. And the story goes is that Bart was like, oh, I don't know. And yeah, it, and I don't think that he's uh, that he's talking about Bart here, but it is it's really hard to find yourself in that line. And we find ourselves there today i you know i don't know what the position is your position is matt um in in england but you know we have uh some pretty terrifying uh people uh coming on the scene in, in american politics and um and uh and it's difficult to know when's at what point do you are you <laughs> go to the pulpit with stuff you know at what point do you is is this a big enough deal to actually go public yeah. and you know be bold and to do something yeah yeah i think i think it's a, I, think, I think it's a particular impetus to do that when you conceive it there are people on the pulpit making arguments for these figures you know using the bible to justify yeah. right wing uh you know na nationalism yeah. and this kind of far right populist agenda that particularly a certain trend of evangelical Christianity has been has been underpinning and and charging for for, for, for years now yeah but the bottom right. line is we have to believe in truth I mean that's we are not subjects of a king we are mm. citizens well, and I, of heaven and I think he actually paints a really cool portrait of this if I can I'll just read the very last or part of the last paragraph he says uh, martyrs prophets and statesmen may each in his own way be servants of the kingdom without the martyr we might live under the illusion that the kingdom of caesar is the kingdom of christ in embryo and forget that there is a fundamental contradiction between the two kingdoms without the successful prophet whose moral indictments affect actual change in the world we might forget that each moment of human history faces actual and realizable higher possibilities without the statement the statesman who uses power to correct injustices of power, we might allow the vision of the, of the kingdom of Christ to become a luxury of those who can afford to acquiesce in present injustice because they do not suffer from it. And I think that's like, you know... It, Beautiful conclusion. Yeah, yeah. It just really paints a picture of what we're getting at in terms of we need how that all, actually is fleshed out. All hands on deck, yeah. 
Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're going to post your interview. Uh, do you want to just explain your interview real quick that you just uh, that you just wrote up? Yeah. So if if you've not checked it out already, I sort of serve as the editor of the Oxford Centre for Intellectual History. So it's a community of uh, an interdisciplinary community of scholars at Oxford focused broadly on the study of ideas in context, and we produce articles advertising the work of scholars both within Oxford and scholars who have affiliations with Oxford. I've recently conducted an interview with a good friend of the Oxford intellectual history scene, a professor called Michael Lamb, who's based at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, and he's just published a new book on St. Augustine, and it's called A Commonwealth of Hope, Augustine's Political Thought, and it's a radical rereading of Augustine, uh, trying to deconstruct some of the pretensions of the mid 20th century readings of him, readings that prioritized his pessimism and presented him as a prophet of fear and, and, and a prophet of sin, rather than a figure who actually had a very optimistic outlook on the possibilities of politics. And what Lamb tries to do is restore um, this, this reading of Augustine and show us how that sort of more optimistic and positive conception of Augustine can be a very useful um, lens by which we can sort of work our way through some of the conundrums of modern politics. So it's a really great read, um, the book, and I think the interview captures some of his key ideas. And even if you're not particularly familiar with the nuances of Augustine's um, texts or his ideas or the scholarship, I think the interview is sort of catered to a general audience. So even if you've never really touched his work before, I think it, it, it can serve as a good introduction into some of the mm. core ideas of Augustine and also the reception of Augustine and why he's been such a important uh, intellectual in, in, in Western history. And a obviously a lot of overlaps with your boy, Reinhold Niebuhr. Of and, course. Um, of course. And, uh, but we're going to go ahead. Thanks, Matt. We're, we're going to go ahead and post that uh, on our, on our Twitter page. Um, check that out. Everybody uh, give it a read. And uh, in the future, hopefully we'll have Matt back on uh, with uh, Dr. Lamb. I think that would be a fantastic interview. So, um, yes, that about does it uh, for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our our guest co-host, Matt Anderson, for taking the time to be with us. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Make sure you tune in next week because you never know. We may just have another surprise guest host on with us. Make sure you like, subscribe, write us a good review if you're enjoying it. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. 